Go ahead. The Inuit tribe up there, I'm wondering how much mammoth meat they consume annually. <laughs> if you can ballpark is- that. <laughs> Yeah, the, well, um, you know, the coolest part, these people, there's only 40 some people that live in that village, but uh, I don't think they eat much mammoth meat at this point. <laughs> this segment of DOD TV is brought to you by Leopold, American to the core. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild podcast, episode number 214. <laughs> As they say in South County, St. Louis. I'm Tim Chelsvick. I'm Matt Drury. We have a great guest on today. We do. And we got shout outs. We got Mr. Pat Reeve from Driven. Pat, are you there? Uh, I am. <laughs> it was, we had what they call in the business technical difficulties getting Pat on. A little bit. <laughs> I think. Not that- on your end, by the way. It's, uh- <laughs> I'm not the most technical savvy person on the world, that's you, for sure. You know, we call Terry T squared, Terry Technology, for the same reason. <laughs> Old man winner. <laughs> He's he got struggles. a lot of names, basically. It's not fair. We don't treat him with the respect that a older person should should get. But we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> but so, it was it was worth the wait to get Pat on. We're gonna talk in a little bit about low intrusion summer scouting techniques. And I know people are starting to get whitetails on the brain and wanting to figure out what they got on their properties walking around. And yeah, you can I mean, do more harm than good this time of year yeah. if you're not careful. I got a little bit of a bone to pick with Pat. I thought we were going to get Nicole. Yeah, I, I just saw it was driven. I thought Nicole would be the one on. Sorry, I'm disappointed Pat. too. But. <laughs> disappointed. Uh, I expect that from Matt, you know, or Terry or Mark. You know, I mean, it's part of the corporate I, philosophy when, we have here. <laughs> when we walk up and we're at a show or something, they're never looking at me. You know, I don't know what it is. They're always staring at Nicole. Weird. And She's friendlier, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they would stare at her, not me. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't want to attract that kind of attention. Don't feed right. the bears. <laughs> so what's happening, man? You you guys, you've had a busy, busy spring, haven't you? Oh, uh, it's been nuts. Um, you know, I mean, uh, we had a lot on our plate here at the Driven Headquarters. Um, I went on kind of my dream hunt of a lifetime this spring. Probably one of my bucket list type of hunts. Went to the Alaskan Peninsula, hunted mm. uh, giant brown bears, um, and uh, had a great hunt. But that was a long, you know, three weeks um, a field. And I shot a 10.5, which is a, like an equivalent to the deer, you know, size. That's like a two, over 200 incher. So, um, you shoot a 10.5 is a true giant, probably 1200 pounds, over 20 years old, just a monster. A 200 incher that could disembowel you with one swipe. (laughs) Break your neck. How far, how far did that bear go once you hit him? Yeah, uh, probably a about three feet straight down <laughs> to the wow. ground. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell you, I tried to shoot him so bad with a bow and arrow because my wife has shot one with a bow. I never got one. So that was kind of the main goal. And, uh, on day six, um, I watched over 80 different bears, um, you know, up on the mountains and stuff and only shoot, you know, I only seen one other bear that was as big as the one I shot. And when I seen this bear walk out, there was just like, let's go. And so we tried to get close enough with the bow, but I had the rifle in hand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when we're going along the valley floor, it just got wide open and we had no cover to, to use to our advantage. So um, at one point he, he knew we were there and he was kind of focused on us and he was working his way right at us in the wide open. So um, I just decided, heck, a bear like this is a bear of a lifetime for me. And, uh, you know, just looks like a grizzly Adams bear. Wait till you see it on film. It's amazing. The thing is a giant. Um, but uh, he walked, you know, into about 150 yards and I shot him with a 375 uh, quartering two. And he went down and I gave him two more quick ones. And, uh, yeah, he didn't move. So, um I guess I'm going to have to go back in four years and try it with a bow. <laughs> so, so on a hunt like that, are you 
camping out in elements or is it going back to a base camp or, you know, what, what's the terrain? What's like, kind of, what's the background of this thing? It's, it honestly, Matt is probably one of the craziest places I've ever been in the world. And I, you know, I've been a lot of different places. Um, but it is real close. It's way down the farther, the farthest tip in the, um, Alaskan peninsula. And, uh, you know, it's, it's super different down there. It's like volcanic. Um, there's lots of like volcanoes that are kind of spouting ash and real mountain. It's a mountain range that you hunt and it's snow capped, real rugged country. And then your way, the bears on each side is the Bering Sea. And, um, on the other side, I think it's Pacific. Don't quote me on that, but, uh, they, they dump off and they go down like 10 miles away from the mountain range is the, the sea. And that's, that's where they feed all summer on fish. That's why they're so big. Mm-hmm. And then in, in the fall, then they move back up onto the mountain and, and hibernate there. So that's where you start hunting them right away in the spring. They haven't been hunted in three years. And, um, so I was excited to be there and, uh, get kind of the first crack at, at bears that haven't been, you know, pressured at all. Um, there's very little hunting there anyways, but, uh, just real super rugged as there's no trees, it's just alders and, um, you know, just, super steep terrain and the bears live in that it's amazing to be there and see that kind of country and hunt in it and then you just pretty much you know thing about brown bear hunting is you don't ever um move around or stalk or walk around and hike around you just pretty much go to one spotting knob and spend most of the time looking through glass Mm. we'll talk about that today you know for whitetails but um you know, you don't want to leave your scent around because scent is the most important thing with bears. They have an unbelievable nose. If a brown bear crosses your tracks, even five days later, he, he'll he blow out of there and you will never see him again. So super, you got to really pay attention to the wind direction and leaving your scent anywhere. So you just pretty much stay in one spot until you see the bear you really want to go after. Mm-hmm. And that's when you put your stock on. And that's what we did. So. <clears throat> and just this is probably a little bit of ignorance, not knowing how it works. But I would assume, like that's a is that not a, it's an apex predator? So wouldn't I, I'm surprised that human scent spooks them if they're never really used to you know smelling human scent out there. Like why does that spook them the way it does? It just no, it's not familiar to them, so it kind of busts them yeah. out. I would say that's the reason. Um, cause they, I mean, most of these bears have never even seen a human. Obviously there's very little hunting there's no human activity there. Um, there's a remote, um, Inuit village that's, you know, that they could probably be around that's quite a ways away, but, um, yeah, they, I guess it's just their nature, you know, and, uh, they're only predators themselves. So, um, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're like, we had a bear, like the first night come in and he was getting close enough for a bow shot and he was over nine foot. And I, I kind of considered it, but he was real rubbed up from being in the den and his hair froze down. So he, he rubbed himself before he even come out of the den. And, uh, he walked up to like 50, 60 yards and, and then he caught our wind and he was gone like instantly. He didn't even think about it. Once he hit our wind uh, stream, he went over the top of that mountain like nothing. So um, they're just, you know, one of those animals that are the most keen animal I know in North America for their nose and their, you know, scent issues. So um, we paid attention to that as much as we could. I mean, we lived in a spike camp in a tent in the alders for, you know, a couple of weeks. So, uh, <laughs> you start to smell yourself and, uh, <laughs> you know, you just gotta always use the, the best, you know, situation you can, whether you're, you know, using scent elimination products or, um, you're just trying to play the wind. <laughs> Go ahead. The Inuit tribe up there, I'm wondering how much mammoth meat they consume annually. <laughs> if you can ballpark that. <laughs> Yeah. um, You know, the coolest part, these people, there's only 40 some people that live in that village, but uh, 
I don't think they eat much mammoth meat at this point. <laughs> Pat, so I, I'm sure you don't listen to the podcast, but a couple of weeks ago, Tim sounded real stupid. And he said that, <laughs> they, that there was, I don't know, something became unfrozen and somebody, some Inuit ate the frozen meat. And that was a story. It turns out it was a turtle. A <laughs> <laughs> sea turtle. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, that place is so crazy. So these Inuits, when you land there, and I know we're getting off the subject a little bit, but it is so we cool. We love Inuit talk. Um, just capturing that environment is amazing. These people live so remotely and are self-sufficient, um, mainly from fishing. But, you know, they travel the beach and it's just an ocean beach, obviously, um, that leads, you know, all the way to Russia and Japan and stuff. And even when the tsunami hit over in Japan, you know, months later, some of that stuff started washing up. And I, I asked them, I'm like, well, what, you know, what's the craziest thing you've ever found on the beach? Because they travel. That's the way they took us down is when the tide got low, they took us down on this, this old Jeep that had beach tires, which are airplane tires that were kind of just manufactured on there. <laughs> um, but uh, they said, Oh yeah, we find dead people, oh, you know, yeah. on the shore. And I was like, well, that's, I guess that's not unusual, you know, cause fishermen fall over, overboard and eventually wash up. Um, they said they find a lot of lumber that falls off of cargo ships in big, you know, big giant wow. bundles. So here they'll be like, and when they find that, that's like gold to them. They go out there and, and uh, you know, here's thousands of dollars worth of lumber just washes ashore and they just, you know, they use everything they can, but we were finding um, like these glass balls that, um, Fisherman's floats are, yeah, they, they used to be on Japanese fishing nets back in the early forties, fifties, and they wash ashore. Of course they get buried by sand. And then when the tide comes in and high, high, uh, tides and uh, rough seas, it exposes them back out and they're very sought after. So we found a couple of those and kind of looking, it's like pretty rare to, to find them, but, uh, pretty neat stuff up there. And there's just, wow. There's all kinds of other things. There's ivory. There's obviously mammoth uh, remains there as well. So pretty cool. No meat though. No mammoth meat. Yet. <laughs> I mean, it's just a matter of time. You said that yeah. it, it no, nobody had hunted there in three years. Was that, why was it shut down or what was going on there? Well, COVID uh, had sure. last year shut down and they, they, uh, up there, on the peninsula, they are in a every other year rotation mm. for their season. So it was just kind of, it hit the, the rotation point. And then last year, then they, they had a lot of no hunting. So they hadn't, you know, been three years since anybody had hunted them. So um, you generally, it's like you hunt in the fall one year, the next year it's the spring, then it changes to the fall again. And there's a, there's a period of time there that they don't get hunted. And that's how it happened this year. Uh, but the Alaskan uh, Department of Natural Resources is, is this year because of COVID last year is opening it for spring and fall for the first time ever. Um, so, uh, you know, all through the peninsula and over on Kodiak Island, um, which is right just across the, the bay, um, those bears are getting hunted more than they ever have. But um, I was glad to get in there and finally shoot one. Now I have to wait four years in a moratorium to be able to go back and a hunt again. Okay. So I have a four year waiting period. So I'll be back with my bow and uh, try to get it done. Cool. But a lot of fun. That's so. interesting. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Wait, so when does that hunt show up on driven on TV? That'll be this year. We're going to, we move things around and we're going to put it on this year, our final episode uh, for the fall rotation. So mm -hmm. show 13, um, we'll have, that spring brown bear hunt. Awesome. So Can't wait excited about it. it. Of course, it's in our open montage. We uh, adjusted things around quick here <laughs> last second to uh, drop some of that footage in there. So you'll see, you'll see that uh, footage in this year's show. Awesome. Cool. Well, let's get to our shout outs. Shall we? We shall. All right. So Mark LeCount on DeerCast, he was talking about Sean Lundy's episode, which was the previous episode, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, great stuff again, guys. You're speaking my language with the small property. Sean was great. Love that guy. He's like every guy up here in Northeast Wisconsin with slight variation in accent. LOL. That stands for laugh out loud, Tim. Oh. Thanks, guys. Nice. And then he has some emojis. Thumbs up, a deer, and a bow. 
I can only imagine that's good. <laughs> nice job. And then uh, from Mainborn Redneck on YouTube, still talking about Sean's show. It says the price of an acre back home in Maine is going for less than 500 bucks an acre, depending on where you're at in the state. Deer yards are highly important because when we've had bad winters, I can remember we had several bad winters in a row. It absolutely decimated the deer population to the point where they closed certain areas of the state and significantly, significantly lowered the number of doe permits they gave out. I took, I took a picture of a field one winter that had probably 500 plus deer in it. Now the deer population really has come back the last couple of years to where they have added additional tags for it. So yes, deer tag, deer yards are highly important. Just interesting to hear what deer hunting is like, like the cultures like in different regions of the country. Yeah. Well, isn't Maine, like, isn't that where the, the, they famously kind of like track deer to hunt them? They don't. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. In the mountains. And they much, just follow a path and yeah. just go. Try to catch up to them. Yeah. I would be screwed. <laughs> we, we would both be screwed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have to sit my butt in one spot for about two months straight. He's got to come to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Five, five months later, we finally caught up with them. <laughs> dropped his antlers by that time. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's noteworthy in DeerCast you want to check out is the article killed by lungworms. I haven't read that one yet. Sounds terrifying. Did it just go like, up today or uh, a couple days ago? <laughs> You'll get in there. <laughs> you got stuff going on. Yeah. Um, there were 40 deer that died in Northern Indiana this spring and uh, DNR biologists are attributing it to lungworm. In addition to a very hard winter, and that hard winter stressed them out and they succumbed to lung and, and literally lung worms are nematodes. They're worms that live in the lung tissue of animals. I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> Thanks, and, the, Barb. And, <laughs> and these deer, like if deer have lung worm, they can exhibit like bronchitis type of, uh, <laughs> um, symptoms, lethargy, those kind of things. Like it, it's literally like in there eating away at their lung tissue. Gross. Nasty. Yeah. Just glad you're not a deer. Well, you can get bronchitis. <laughs> <laughs> got bronchitis. Ain't nobody maybe got time a, for that. Maybe it's a form of COVID. There oh, Jesus. Crossed maybe over. COVID, COVID worms. Pat, don't start any rumors <laughs> on this podcast. Well, I heard on the 100% Wild podcast. All of a sudden, we can't play on Apple. We can't play on Facebook. We can't talk about mammoth meat. There's a COVID <laughs> variant of worms now. Pat's getting us in trouble. Yeah, nice job, Pat. <laughs> All right. So, so what are we digging into today? What's the question of the day? I got to know. Well, uh, question of the day is about small food plots in the woods Pat's helping us out with scouting, like summer scouting techniques. Okay. So, so you don't bump your deer. So we kind of have two different tracks okay, here. Okay. So that which we're, one should we jump on first? The, let's let's talk about you know, Pat. And how do you how do you do your kind of summer inventory without bumping deer off your properties? Especially if if guys are hunting the timber. Like there, there's a lot there. So unpack that for us. Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of people have different opinions on. And, you know, inventorying deer and scouting. And of course, um, everybody's excited to get out there because they're getting the itch to, you know, start looking at big deer again. It's been you know, half a year since they're in the woods. So, you know, first cool period, everybody starts driving the roads and, and uh, getting on their four wheelers and, and going out and trying to get their eye on, on what might be there for the that fall's hunt. But uh, I always tell people, you know, you got to be a little bit careful because uh, you certainly don't want to pressure the deer in a way that might bump those deer off of the property and then uh, potentially relocate them into a different summering area. Um, so. And it depends, of course, on the size of your property and what, what might be available. But, uh, you know, I think a guy just has to pay a little bit closer attention to those uh, summer scouting missions um, and not be careless or reckless. And, you know, my, my thought in and how we do it here, and, of course, like I said, everybody's got a different way of doing things. But, I mean, we we allow – we kind of really have in the recent years just allowed our cameras or our, especially our cellular cameras to do our scouting for us. Um, we set them up on water holes and the trails that lead into food sources, um, you know, pinch points into our bean fields and so on and so forth. We can't use mineral here, but 
if we could use mineral here, you know, in the old days, we used to set them up on those as well. So, um, you a lot of times will catch deer, um, on their, on their feet at those sites and draw them into those particular areas. So now we just pretty much count on water holes to do our inventorying, uh, from the main part. And then of course, you know, some edges and stuff like that, that the bad part, you know, the thing is, I want to get the deer close to the camera so I can get great, you know, intel on him. And that's why the water holes work a little better than the field edges, because you get a lot of pictures that are farther away and uh, some, you know, blurred images. So, um, you know, and and if you can use uh, any attractants, that's even a better way. Um, I know a lot of people, uh, over the years have used corn piles to, uh, inventory their deer, even in the summer. Yeah. I don't know why bucks like eating corn when it's hot out, but, um, generally in full velvet, they love going to those corn piles and you can really do a good job at inventorying all the bucks on your property, um, by, by using those. So I, I gotta, it's not, obviously you got to check and make sure your, you know, your state laws allow that, but, uh, you know, that's a great way to inventory deer with low pressure. So on your water holes, cause I, I got a, a new lease that Aaron Bennett and I just picked up and it's, we, it's in a County in Missouri where we cannot uh, do any supplemental feeding or mineral or anything like that. And so yep. it's got a couple uh, ponds on it, one key pond, right in a great spot. How are you positioning your cameras are, is it, in the water or is it like, where are you putting it exactly to make sure, I mean, you know, on the pond, you're getting them, I guess, are your water holes smaller or what, how are you going about this? Yeah. Our water holes are generally about 20 by 20 feet. They're pretty small and you can really tell by the, you know, the tracks that where they're kind of coming in and, and drinking from. So we'll position either on a tree that, that shoots in that direction to where, um, you're capturing them where they're in that in that exact spot, or if there's no trees available, then we'll use a, a simple camera stand, mm-hmm. you know, a metal stand to um, you know keep that camera in, in that position. But um, yeah, I mean that's kind of our always been our um, you know scouting angle, and, and it's low impact. I, I like getting out there, of course, and seeing velvet bucks, but. Um, again, I don't want to put much impact on them. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we go sit, we have muddy blinds, you know, permanent blinds set up on big field systems where, um, we can get in there undetected and just sit and watch for the night film. We do some early season filming to get all that footage. Um, but again, it's, it's kind of like hunting, you know, we, we go in there when the wind is right. And, um, we try to, you know, use every advantage to keep the deer more in a natural state and not be bumping them. Because believe it or not, even in the summer, in the summer months, they're still susceptible to catching your wind and, and mm-hmm. blowing out of there and, and causing all kinds of ruckus. So uh, we're pretty careful with that. The other thing that we do, if, if we go into those situations or we want to you know, physically be out there looking at deer with uh, our optics and glassing, um, we take electric systems in, um, either we run Polaris electrics, um, for, um, vehicles that we use those during hunting. So we get in there really quiet or we'll use, um, we have Rambo bikes as well as a sponsor. So we use e-bikes and I know you guys have, do you, you guys have e-bikes now? Yeah. The rogue. Yeah. Rogue Ridge, yeah. uh, e-bikes. Yep. Yeah. They're great too. I know those guys as well. Um, great bikes, but bikes have really picked up in popularity in the last year or two. And, uh, certainly a great way to do some summer scouting is just jump on your, your e-bike and, uh, get back into, um, spots and, um, check it out very quietly. Yeah. Pat, before the, the advent of cell cameras, how frequently were you going to pull cards on your cameras during the summer? <laughs> um, I would say probably, uh, on a weekly basis, maybe not quite, you know, sometimes if they were real and super remote spots or close to bedding areas or areas that would be kind of higher impact, or I would, um, be going through deer or bumping deer. Um, then I would leave them for a couple weeks at a time, just depending on the card size, obviously, mm-hmm. because they fill up fast and, 
on those water holes because there's a lot of deer activity. Um, you know, if I, if I had it on a water hole and I had a lot of rain, I would leave it there longer, obviously, because they wouldn't be utilizing that water hole like they would normally when a dry period, but summer dry periods and the heat, um, attracts those deer to those spots. So that's our best inventory methods. Um, there's been, you know, we do other things too, to try to inventory them, but, um, just again, I think it's low impact and, Mm -hmm. you know, that that's proof positive. Um, we got a piece of a new piece of property here a couple of years ago and, uh, we started managing it of course, planted all our food, food plots and started building ponds on it and stuff. And we had, um, uh, we had it for one year and, um, I felt I had a good handle on what the residential bucks lived there. And this new buck showed up that following spring and I started monitoring, you know, him by a water source and also a food plot. And I'm like, what this deer, I didn't recognize this deer at all because he just, he was different than any deer that I knew of there. He's super wide and heavy. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, of course, my wife, Nicole, she laid claim to him right away. She's like, that's the deer I want to shoot. As he started to get into that 170 class, she's like, yeah, that's my buck. And I'm like, I think again, if he comes by me, it's not going to be your buck very long. Things you think, but don't say. He stayed there. And I was thinking to myself, this deer does not live here. And he's non-residential because I didn't have any intel from years past. And um, always just praying that, that he would stay there long enough for the season to open. I get a crack at him. So again, it was I was very careful of not going in there and giving him a reason to leave and relocate back to his old core area. Mm-hmm. So and where he came from. So um, I was super super cautious on that, that, uh, you know, thing. And what happened is, um, he ended up staying there long enough and I knew it wouldn't be long, you know, generally after velvet, they do spread out and they, you know, go back to their core areas or, you know, back to more of their fall range spots instead of where they're summering. And, uh, I knew if I was going to get him, I'd have to shoot him early. And I did, I shot him on opening night. And he was like a 175 typical. He walked right underneath my wife and she couldn't get a shot. And she was so excited. She, she called me at the end of the night. She goes, you're never going to believe it. Um, I saw my buck. He come out and he went, he didn't give me a shot. He walked right underneath me. I was at full draw forever. Oh. And finally I said, well, where'd he go? And uh, she goes, I don't know. He, he walked out of the, off to my right and down the trail. And I said, I know where he went. He came out to me and he's laying stone dead. <laughs> Who said like, chivalry's dead? <laughs> she's like, oh my God. And she, I know she wasn't really happy for me. That she was, she was yeah, weird. You want to punch me right now, but you won't. <laughs> That's well, maybe she did. <laughs> she hurt me bad. <laughs> no. so, Classic. I, I'm just, I use that example because there, there was a situation where we did not go in there and put a lot of pressure on that deer early on. And that kept him there. And the food sources, I just relied on that food and that water to, to keep him there. And of course we had good enough, sufficient bedding area. I mean, he wasn't concerned with does at that point. He was really concerned about just low impact and food and water and security. Sure. Now, Pat, what about scouting from a truck? Like how, how much can you get away with and not necessarily driving, but if you just want to go, like I've got a cattle ranch that I hunt and it's just full of rolling Hills and I'd like to go in there with my truck and just post up someplace high and sit, but I'm not sure how much, uh, that might bump some deer. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think that puts hardly any impact because, you know, deer are real used to on ranches. They're used to you know, the ranchers running around in trucks, they use the ATVs a lot, just depends on the area. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of the farming practices that might be in place there, but, um, generally, you know, scouting from road systems, there's always vehicles there. Uh, 
you know, I do notice over the years, I mean, we've done massive amounts of scouting and filming in the old days over in Buffalo County. And, uh, you know, you pull up to a field at night with a basher group there. And the, generally that's funny because those biggest deer that are like five, six years old, they give you about 10 seconds to look at them and they, they turn around and they tuck tail and they get back into cover out of sight from you. So, um, the younger ones will stay there and give you, a, you know, a long time to look at them, but the big ones, they're still, they're still shy. They don't like the, that pressure, but I mean, road systems and stuff like that. I don't think it really, you know, generally puts much pressure. The problem is you have a road system, you either get, issues with deer getting hit by cars mm-hmm. or potentially poached from the road. Yeah. That's what I was going to say when he said the, the big ones go back in. <laughs> They're smart. They know, yeah. They see brake lights and the window roll down. Fix it. Get shot. <laughs> yeah. <It's> drive by. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes Matt Drury. Yeah. Right. <laughs> They'd be pretty safe. <laughs> um, you mentioned your, your uh, trail cameras earlier and, and we could do a whole segment on this, but what, what are your typical settings in terms of like burst photos and how do you make sure that you don't fill up a car, but you're also getting the Intel that you need? Oh, that's a very great question because Thank I mean you. they do fill and you get a lot of unwanted pictures. But uh, um, again, you know, I think you're going to put up with some of that in the spring or I mean in the summer months when you're going to get fawn and doe activity. Um, obviously, later on, you know, when scrapes start, you get we relocate those cameras to more scrape positions or licking branches to where you're going to get a lot more buck activity and and that can be a great summer um, pattern as well um, that you can put your cameras on licking branches because they use those, especially bucks. If you have one of those situations, I know that the breweries are famous for putting, you know, a scrape tree out and a a plot um, and uh, making that branch available. So there's a, you know, a great way to um, monitor inventory or boxes mm-hmm. by using that method as well. But, um, you know, the setting, as far as settings, um, I just, uh, try to keep my camera settings or I keep a large card in there so I can take a lot of photos sure. and, and, um, that way I don't have to go in there and check it a lot if it's just a regular trail camera, but if it's a cellular, which is, is, I mean, I think if anything has changed our scouting techniques and, and the way we scout is, I mean, these things have become revolutionary. And, and I remember back in the day when we used to, you know, hook a device on the tree and then we'd run a thread over to another device. And when a deer walked down the trail and, and hit that thread and broke that thread from the device, it tripped the clock and it would set the clock off. We thought we had, we got them. Oh, we got them. Yeah, man, (laughs) it was revolutionary. We're going to really be able to pattern these big bucks. Now It's, it's really came a long ways. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, some people might, you know, argue that it's still an unfair advantage, but I'm telling you, I mean, in my opinion, it really makes, it takes scouting to a whole new level. It gives people uh, a lot of um, um, intel that they normally wouldn't have and allows them to, you know, of course, inventory all their deer which I think is, is really take, you know, I would argue the point that it's made all of us that hunt and use trail cameras, better hunters and better stewards for managing the buck population. Cause you, you might be able to study a buck a little bit more and, and be able to, you know, look at his photos and, and determine, eh, that's a buck I want to lay off. He's only a three or four year old and I want to let it have another year instead of sitting in the tree and all of a sudden you see this deer come in and he looks like a big frame and you, you have to make a quick decision and you shoot him and then you're disappointed because, Oh, I wish I would have let that deer have another year. So now you can identify that deer and go, Oh, I, you know, that's just George or whatever. I'm going to let him walk Good old because George. he's got potential. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a lot of ways to, to look at it, but, uh, I mean, there, these things are, they've definitely changed. I know that you guys use them tons and i mean it it makes it allows you to make great 
uh, decisions when it comes to picking your hunting spots and, and monitoring the movement and such. Yeah. So. Pat, what about your glass? Like, are you a binos guy, spotting scope? What's your kit for the summer? Um, well, I mean, if I'm, I always have my spotting scope in the summer in my truck and, um, I'll be, you know, when I'm driving, um, no matter if I'm on, on the farm and, and, uh, I just set up on a high spot, like you mentioned earlier, where you can kind of oversee some fields. I know, you know, like Illinois got the big lower fields down in those river bottoms, you know, just get up on a high spot and those that's still low intrusion because you can sit so far away, but yet still pull them in with that kind of glass. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, we obviously use glass a lot in a, in hunting and in scouting. So there's always a pair of binoculars with me because the last thing I want to do is see a big buck and I go, Oh, that's a, that's a good one. You're a big, that's a giant and go and I can't identify which giant it is or whatever. So right now, obviously the better glass you have, the more power and clarity, Mm -hmm. um, that allows you to identify that not just the deer, but what his features are coming into, you know, this new growing period, you know, does he, is he developing drops or stickers or, you know, what's his typical frame like? So um, I think that that's important to have that kind of glass to really um, start determining how big he is going to turn out to be. Sure. Great. Anything else summer scouting wise you think it's important people know? Um. Again, I think, you know, like I said, just being stealthy, just getting in there and staying undetected as, as possible. Um, and, uh, I mean, I drive my, my electrics or I drive my vehicles right to my, my, uh, camera setups and, uh, change out the cards without even really getting out and walking around. So I keep my scent more to a minimum. Um, and, uh, it's funny because if we have to go hang stands in the summer, which sometimes we do, you know, we'll get a new farm late and and now we're forced to go in and uh, set it up late, which I don't like doing, but that's sometimes the nature of the business, right? I mean, we're all busy. So um, it's funny how we'll go in and we'll set this place up and, you know, trim out shooting lanes and such. And there's lots of all these, there's lots of deer tracks, but we start setting cameras there and start monitoring the especially big old does i mean they they come in and they really smell every little twig and branch and smell your stands and they're they're mentally making notes in their head oh there's something unusual here and there's a lot of you know human involvement so when they come back in that area in the future they still pay attention to where they remember that scent was very prevalent mm. especially where that tree stand is that or a ladder stand or, or, you know, know, hanging sticks or whatever. So that, uh, that, that goes in there, their little computer system up there and they, they don't forget that. And then what happens is they might work downwind of that in the, you know, during the fall months and when you're in the tree and get you just because of that, that pattern that you've heard that action that you did is, is you tipped them off that you're there. So, you know, again, trying to get that done earlier on is probably always better, but if you're going in there and having to do it late, um, pay attention more to your, you know, your scent and and keeping everything to a minimum, kind of like a trapper would, you know, a trapper goes in and sets a trap. He, he keeps the scent to a minimum, um, by, you know, wearing, you know, long sleeves and, sometimes gloves and stuff like that, rubber boots. You know, we, we all wear lacrosse boots, um, doing something that's a little bit smarter and not going in there in your shorts and, you know, laying, you know, human scent everywhere. Yeah. Human scent or worse. Hmm. What could that be? Use your imagination. Okay. Uh-huh. How about we help our buddy Larry out with the question of the day? All right. The question of the day is probably brought to you by HHA Sports. American made with tool-free adjustments, protected fiber optics, and 100% lifetime warranty. Find out why HHA has been the leader in sites for over 30 years. Hi, my name is Larry Walker. I'm from Southern Central Missouri. My question is, what would be y'all's steps slash advice 
to planting a eighth to a quarter acre food plot in the woods, and when would you start doing that? Thank you. I love the podcast. I've learned so much. Have a great day. Thanks, Larry. I wanted to know. I thought maybe he was the former Colorado, Colorado Rocky. It could be. Then he was a Cardinal. He's a Hall of Famer, Larry Walker. Let's just assume that. <laughs> Larry's a big hunter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he loves watching the show. <laughs> like many ball players. That <laughs> wouldn't actually be out of the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Ball players well, love to watch baseball. And hunting. Uh, and hunting. Yes. Sorry, and, I meant hunting. And us. <laughs> and us. No, actually not us. Mark and Terry. Yeah, yeah. The, the real guys. Pat, what do you think about a small food plot in the woods? How would you go about doing that? By the way, I, I'm a Twins fan, so yeah. I, my wife's a Cardinals fan. I know y'all love Cardinals, so um, she's a true oil and water. Hard to hear they're not doing best this year. They <laughs> were fine until about oh, two weeks ago, and they took a real yeah. nosedive here. <laughs> yeah, we're used to that in Minnesota, so it's just not <laughs> not something we expect as a winning yeah know, schedule, but. Uh, what was your question? Sorry. So, <laughs> talking ba- baseball talk. That's the best answer to a question <laughs> yeah. of the day. What that was what I said that so many times in school. Yeah. I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question, please? I was looking out the window. <laughs> Larry's wanting to know how to go about and when he should go about planting maybe a half acre or a quarter acre food plot back in the woods. A little hidey hole. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, right now, like we're our spring planning has already been done because we're well into the summer months. Um, and if we're planting an interior plot, which is back in the, in the woods, um, depends on what you're planting. Obviously if we're plant, like if I'm planting soybeans, it's already been done earlier in the spring mm-hmm. because you know, I need a hundred days of, uh, frost feet, frost free weather to be able to grow, you know, adequate, uh, soybeans or corn, but, um, the best thing I would tell Larry this just to, um, probably plant a brassica plot back there. Um, try to clear out as much trees or allow sunlight to get into those interior plots, fertilize them, um, probably lime, put some lime on 10 ton an acre at least, um, because, those interior plots are very acidic because of leaf matter breakdown over the years. So you got to neutralize that soil, fertilize it, and then come in, um, in our country, in the North, we want to plant our brassica plots in the end of July, first, first week of August, depending on the rain situation. Um, I also underseed those with clover because then, uh, that clover starts to grow up underneath those brassicas, um, throughout the, the fall months. And then in the spring, so first thing it greens up, it gives them the first source of protein, um, that we have up here. So, um, and then of course turns into a clover plot the following year. So, um, but I would, I would tell them to probably plant turnips and, and brassicas, um, in any, any green source. Um, some people plant, you know, um, chicory, some people plant uh, rye, whatever, but uh, give them that green source. In our food plot, if you went to our interior plots right now and you looked at them, I give them a a smorgasbord of reasons to come there. Mm -hmm. And I put these interior plots kind of in staging areas, more or less, um, to where they're coming off. I know where their direction, they're coming off their bedding areas and they, they stop, they feed in those interior plots. And they stay for a while, but our deer then eventually move out of there and they go to another bigger plot system, which is out in our main fields away from the timber. But those timber plots become kind of those little staging areas and they're about a half acre in size or smaller. And they have, I give them water there. So I'll have a, a 20 by 20 water hole there. And then I'll have maybe some apples, apple trees planted and then I'll have, you know, uh, the green food source as well. And I, I also have soybeans back in, in those interior plots, but I have to protect them because they're so small and they're so susceptible for, you know, over browsing during the summer months. So then I, I put a electric system around them sure. to keep the deer out until I want them to go in there and then I pull it down. 
Smorgasbord is the right word. So, you know, you might want to do a soil test. You know, as Pat, Pat said, it, you're probably likely going to need quite a bit of lime, but you might do a soil test ahead of that. You also, when you're, you know, it wouldn't hurt going in like this time of year probably and start doing your clearing mm-hmm. and getting pre- like all the prep work, get it ready. Based on where he said he lived, I think he would be planting like mid-August to late August potentially. And, mm-hmm. and then he's ready for that opening day. It's green. It's, you know, it's palatable right there around opening day. If there's any, you know, beans around them, that stuff will start defoliating as, as you know, the, you know, the palatability on the green food source really picks mm-hmm. up. So there's a few things that prep work wise, you would probably want to do leading into that and make sure he's, he's good to go. Sure. That's a, that's a good point. Um, I, th- I tell you, that's where I think a lot of people make the big mistakes and they try to plant in a hurry. There's some pre-planning that has to be done. So, Right now, we have started our prep work on our fall plots right as we speak. We're in there right now. Um, If the weeds are too tall, which, I mean, happens to most people where they just let it go rogue and and there's um, a lot of weed matter and, and maybe they haven't even planted it before, but they're thinking about, you know, developing that into a food plot area you need to get in there and mow that, that weed matter down first, let that start growing back and then kill it off with Roundup and um, let that burn down for a two week period and then go in there, till it after it's burned down. Um, if there's still too much weed matter there and it might plug your tiller, you got to get that weed matter off there. But if there, if there's none there, you know, if it's burned down and it's thinned out, till it up. I let it kind of grow back again. Mm-hmm. So it'll take a couple of weeks and you'll start seeing, of course, weeds start coming back through. I'll then hit it again one more time with Roundup, wait another couple of weeks. And now I'm ready for my fall planting and I go in there and then till, and I'm telling you, it's as clean as a whistle. You won't have one single weed in there. And then, then put down your brassica. Um, and call to pack it and uh, hopefully get rain. So um, it's a process. And most people just like, oh, I'm going to go put this plot in and try to jam it in. And, and it's just nothing but solid weeds. And uh, they till it up and the whole ground is just matted with, uh, you know, basically dead weeds or, you know, still some of them still alive. So and their plots look raggy and, and not as lush and succulent as, as Matt was saying. So yeah, prep work. Think about it right now. Get out there and start spraying it, mowing it down, getting it prepared. Get your stands in there as early as possible um, and, and get it done. There's a, I, I think I mentioned it maybe the last podcast. Um, there's a Facebook group called Food Plots and Equipment that it's a real good source for, you know, your everyday guy that are putting in these type of food plots, mm-hmm. small and large. And um, it's a good resource to ask questions. There's, you know, you're going to get a lot of information there too. So I would say if you didn't, if it didn't quite succeed for you, you know, when you're sitting there in the fall and you're like, man, this just doesn't look you know, like, like it does on TV or whatever, it could take you a couple of years to figure it out. I mean, yeah. it's not, it's not rocket science, but it's also not easy to somebody that's just starting out. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, finding those resources, um, you know, Bobby Cole and those guys got a gamekeepers podcast that it's a good resource. Like there's those types of things are out there and I just, I would learn up on everything you can and, and, and then go execute. Yeah. So you're not wasting time, yeah. money, ETC. Yeah. Speaking of wasting time, <laughs> Time for the wildlife word segment. <laughs> That's the best segue yet. It's brought to you by the American Hunting Lease Association, your hunting access resource. And it's about lungworm. Oh, great. You can imagine that. <laughs> What's one factor that contributes to lungworm infections in whitetails? Is it A, how much daylight the deer receives? B, overpopulation of deer in an area? C, blowing on an infected kazoo? Or D, dehydration. Pat, do you need us to repeat the question? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm stumped. I I know. I'm going to eliminate blowing on the kazoo. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, I'm sure overpopulation allows for it to spread early, you know. Okay. So Pat's got B. Uh, yeah, I, well, let's see what, what factor, how much daylight did you receives overpopulation, the kazoo or dehydration? 
Yeah, I would go with B overpopulation. Both- D sounds good too, Matt. Yeah, dehydration is not it's bad. I thought plausible, about it, but, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I thought ultimately spreading overpopulation would be the worst thing for that. You guys are both right. Ding, Congratulations. Ding. Yeah. <laughs> Pat, you've now experienced the full 100% wild podcast. <laughs> In all its glory. And you know, you wonder why Mark and Terry don't do it with us. It's weird. Yeah, I was wondering that. I mean, I thought here I thought I was signing up for a podcast, talking to, you know, my iconic figures in the, in the business. And I couldn't be farther from the truth. We're working our way up. <laughs> you thought you were going to get in a call, so we're both. Well, yeah, we're both disappointed. Everybody's disappointed. That's the true theme of the podcast. Yes. Disappointment. 100% disappointed. Hey, I got a great too. idea. I know one way we can get Mark and Terry is we'll get Nicole to do it on yeah. the other other end. That's right. So they'll be like, yeah, I'm all in. Yeah. When can we do it? When calendar's pretty open. And actually there's <laughs> only two mics on the, on the set. So Matt and Tim will have to sit this one out. I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, uh, if so folks, so folks can see your bear hunt on driven this fall on outdoor channel, anything else that you want to tell people about that you guys are up to? No, not much. Uh, my daughter, Olivia, got married, who Matt, Matt knows Olivia. Congratulations. Uh, wow. Big yeah, moment. She's, she uh, got married last weekend, so uh, I got a new son-in-law in the family. And, uh, yeah, she's uh, she's doing well. Um, she shot her biggest buck this year. It'll be on Driven um, with a bow. And she's uh, she's the archery manager uh, for – that's what she does for occupation. She's the archery manager for Shields. Um here in Rochester. So. What, what I always cool. love about uh, following along with Pat and Nicole on their social pages and the TV show is, is the fi- family dynamic. Like these kids are legitimately going out on their own and doing things, hanging their stands, hunting on their own, like filming each other. Like it's, it's really a b- breath of fresh air to, sure. to watch. And I'm sure you're proud of, of all of them. Yeah. They, they're, I mean, they, you know, Matt, you got kids and, uh, Look at, I mean, Taylor, I mean, I, I remember all these kids coming up and, and we incorporate them naturally. They, we don't force them to do it. I actually, my oldest son don't hunt at all. And uh, he likes fishing and likes the outdoors, but he just mm-hmm. never, never really cared to hunt. And uh, that's okay. But I have four that um, are hunters. Uh, my five-year-old uh, shot his first turkey this year cool. uh, already on video. And so he looks like he's going to be, you know, an, a future hunter. So, um, yeah, I mean, I let them do it at their own pace mm. uh, and, you know, they all love doing it. We live in a great part of the world because hunting here is traditional. Um, it's cool to go to school and show your deer pictures off and to share them with Amy, my daughter, who is uh, 16, she's uh, sharing photos with other 16 year old girls and they're talking about deer hunting. I mean, where else in the world do you live that they do that? I mean, it's just, so I love that part of it. And uh, it's super rewarding to have them involved and have them helping out because Obviously, that's our future. Mm-hmm. Just for clarification, the 16-year-old was not the one that got married. Good job. <laughs> right. Not that part of the world. <laughs> yeah, anyways, yeah. Well, that's cool, man. We appreciate you jumping on. And uh, I, I highly recommend if, if you're hiding under a rock and haven't watched Driven, it's just a cinematic. It's just a it's beautiful. beautiful yeah. It really is. And, and that, there's no other way to put it other than cinematic. So uh, that's... Tuesday nights, 8.30 Central, right? Correct. Yeah. Yep. Right. Right. It it airs right before 13 and then critical mass. So you literally can get an hour and a half of some really fun quality content right there on the outdoor channel. So check it out. We're in there too. All right. (laughs) All right, Pat. Thanks for hopping on. We appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, guys. Anytime. Next time I'll try to do better and get Nicole on. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Until next time, everybody. Peace out. See ya. DeerCast is giving you the chance to hunt with Mark and Terry Drury. Head over to DeerCast.com to enter.